find ourselves this morning in the concluding chapters of the Old Testament, the uh, four brief chapters of Malachi and the last half of Nehemiah. And we're sort of combining them this morning because the themes in both are very, very similar. One sort of speaks to the other. We need to understand that the voice of God is about to fall silent that for 400 years, roughly, after this point, after the end of Malachi, there, there won't be any prophets. There won't be any more messages. There won't be any more directives. While Malachi off offers the hope of the coming Messiah, and he talks about the coming kingdom, on the whole, the closing chapters of the Old Testament are extremely sober. They're not particularly joyful. They're difficult. Uh, in our world of uh, Christianity, where we think everything's supposed to be positive and encouraging, uh, they're not so much. They're hard. They're hard messages. It's a very sober end note to the Old Testament. And it is all about the failure of God's people to live as God's people, the failure of God's people to live in covenant with God. And that idea of covenant, of course, can be incredibly important because the transition that we're talking about in over that 400 years is a transition from the old covenant that we understood the, the people of Israel to live under and the new covenant, which we've been invited to live under. So this idea of covenant is incredibly important, and we need to understand a little bit more about what that's about. We have a tendency to assume that covenant uh, means the law, and so the new covenant is like a new set of rules that replace the law, and that's really not the idea of covenant at all. Covenant expresses the faithful permanence of God's nature. So God makes covenants because it's in his nature to do so. God says something, and it is. This is the God who speaks creation into existence. His word is that powerful. His word is absolute. By comparison, humanity's word doesn't really mean all of that much. A covenant in, in terms of the vocabulary that we can apply to it a covenant is an unconditionally binding promise. And we have to add those terms, unconditional and binding, because our experience with human promises is that they are not necessarily binding and they're certainly not unconditional. But this is within God's nature. When God promises something, it is absolute. It is unconditional and it is binding in a way that human promises simply cannot be, will not be. It could be argued that in a lot of ways this covenant language is completely unnecessary because the consistency of God, the permanence of God, the faithfulness of God is so a part of his nature that there's really no need for him to express anything in the form of covenant. Anything he says simply is. And so this covenant language is really added to Scripture for the benefit of humanity. 
we're being invited to consider how it is that God enters into an agreement with people, how it is that God makes promises to people. And we have a number of these covenants throughout Scripture, right? God makes a covenant with Noah. He makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes a covenant with Israel. He is extending himself by way of this unbreakable promise that he is going to be absolutely faithful to. In contrast, humanity often responds to God's covenants with contempt. Now, in fairness, that is very often not what we intend to do. It's not that humanity starts out thinking, I'm going to throw this back in God's face. It's just the, the reality of our fallen nature is that it kind of defies permanence. Our promises tend to not carry the weight that God's promises carry. We tend to not be as faithful as God. So we consider this at the end of Nehemiah. Just look at this story of what's happening here. At the end of Nehemiah, the wall has been completed, and the people come together for what is, in essence, a sacred assembly. And it's really pretty cool. It's, it's a great story. It's pretty... It's amazing, after all that we've seen the people of Israel go through, if we've seen them falter on so many occasions, here's this story about everybody coming together and doing some things that you wouldn't expect people to do unless they were really serious, unless they were really committed this time. They build a platform for Ezra, and they meet in this big city square. Thousands of them meet in this city square. And it's this very worshipful event where Ezra begins to, he begins to talk about God and they all rise to their feet and they put their hands in the air and they're praising God. And he begins to read from the book of the law and they all fall down on their faces and they're all prostrate before God. Nehemiah says they, they listen intently as Ezra read from the law, which is, which is a considerable thing in and of itself. Because it says that he started early in the morning. He started at daybreak. So we can assume that he started around 6 a.m. in the morning. And that he read from the law. And he tells us that not only did he read from the law, but they offered commentary so that people would understand. So from daybreak until noon... In other words, he preached at them for five or six hours. And Nehemiah says they listened intently the whole time. That's a miracle in and of itself. Amen. Not only do they listen, but they are weeping as they hear the words of the law. They are recognizing how, how, how they have fallen short of God's promise. But then they're told, stop your crying. Don't cry over this right now. We want you to be joyful. This is an occasion for joy. Go out, celebrate. Have yourself some, some of the best food and wine that you can muster up. 
share with anybody who doesn't have anything because this is an occasion for great joy. You begin to wonder if this isn't the realization of Josiah's reforms. You remember Josiah way back when, before Daniel, Josiah, probably the inspiration to Daniel and his friends for being genuine followers of God, for putting their trust in him. Josiah initiated all these reforms, tried to do all of these uh, things to to restore to restore the temple and the temple service and the faithfulness to the law. And, of course, it doesn't really get very far, and the people are still sent off into exile. But here we have this event now. Things are coming full circle, and here we are. The people are back in Jerusalem, and they are gathered together. They're listening to the law. They are cut to the heart about this law. They are weeping. Then they're told, nope, we want you to be joyful. They go out and they celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles. Festival of Tabernacles or the Festival of Booths or Sukkot. Right? So they go out and they they gather twigs, basically. They gather twigs and they make these temporary structures and they live in them for the week. And this is what the law commanded of them. And it was commemorative of the time that they spent wandering in the wilderness, and they were completely dependent upon God's provision, and it's a celebration of that time. And, and, and the book of Nehemiah tells us that it had not been celebrated this way since the time of Joshua, son of Nun. You know who Joshua, son of Nun is? is that military commander that first brought them over the Jordan into the promised land, and they began defeating those cities, and you know, they march around Jericho and all that great stuff. From the time that they entered into the Holy Land until this time that they've been exiled and returned to the Holy Land, this festival had not been celebrated this way. It's a remarkable story about their faithfulness to the law. They're celebrating things that their ancestors had completely forgotten about. I want you to understand the context of what's happening here. Because Sukkot falls very shortly after the the Jewish New Year, the Festival of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, we hear it called now. Right? These festivals kind of happen almost back to back, and that's really important. Because they've just finished building the wall. They've just gathered for this sacred assembly. They're they're reading from the law, and they're obviously reading these passages about these sacred feasts, these biblical feasts. And right now, they're kind of playing catch-up. They realize as they're reading through it, we're we're supposed to be doing this uh, tabernacles thing right now. Well, the Festival of Trumpets is an opportunity for the people to reflect on the past year. And, and, and then the tabernacles is an opportunity for them to rejoice at God's provision. And so we have this season of solemn reflection followed by a season of very intentional joy. It is the only uh, one of the, of the seven biblical festivals at which the people are commanded to be joyful. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, 
Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. And yet they still have things to grieve over. They've just confronted the reality in reading through the law, they've confronted the reality of who they have been to God, and it's not adequate. And so the Israelites responded with what amounts to a New Year's resolution. That's what's going on here in Nehemiah. They answer God's promises to them with promises of their own. And that's very exciting. It's a very hopeful scene in Scripture. But, like most of our New Year's resolutions, the effect is rather temporary. There are lofty promises made, but they don't really seem to go anywhere. And so Nehemiah makes, uh, in essence, a business trip back to Persia, and when he returns, he finds that the people have fallen away from God again. And when Malachi opens up his book of prophecy, when he starts speaking for God, he speaks about all the ways in which the people fail to honor God. Malachi ends the Old Testament in all honesty on kind of a sour note. Because what he's talking about is the defiance of God's people and their justifications for their defiance. In other words, they're getting really good at breaking covenant with God. Really determined about it. And there's a number of ways that they go about it. In, uh, in Malachi 1.8, it says, And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? So they're breaking covenant with God, first of all, the prophet says, by defiling sacrifices. We had uh, a wonderful gathering with our extended family over the holidays. Uh, My wife's family was here, and it was a significant family gathering because we just lost her grandmother this past uh, fall, and uh, so it was the first time we had this Christmas family gathering without her, and her presence was absolutely missed. But there's been a lot of storytelling in our family because of all of that. One of the stories that we were talking about actually has to do with her grandfather, who passed several years before. And I I was uh, very close to to Lisa's grandfather, and uh, he had a woodworking hobby. After he retired, he took up woodworking, and he would make little things and give them to family members or sell them at craft shows and whatnot. Uh, As I was integrating myself into the family, I often got to the point where I was sent over to Grandpa's shop to help him with woodworking projects. And I I, I put that in air quotes because the reality of it was that I was sent over to slow him down. Because Lisa's grandfather was infamously impatient. And for those of you who've ever done woodworking, you know that it requires a great deal of patience to do it well. He liked to skip steps. 
wasn't really big on sandpaper. He liked to skip steps, though. In one particularly egregious incident, my mother-in-law gave him a family heirloom dining table to refinish and had beautiful, ornate, hand-carved legs. And he started stripping those legs, and it wasn't too long before he decided that was way too much work. So he took those beautiful, ornate, hand-carved legs, put them on a lathe, and just cut down all of that ornate woodwork. And so the table that she got back had just these straight dowels for legs. She was a little upset. I was sent over to slow him down because, as he put it, when he would turn out these projects on which he knew he had taken numerous shortcuts, he would say, it's good enough for the girl I go with. You know, David famously refused to sacrifice anything to God that didn't cost him personally. Paul tells us to make our lives a living sacrifice to God. What the people are doing here, according to Malachi, is they're saying that these lame and blind and broken sacrifice offerings are good enough for God. And God says, are they really are they really? This is about as close as you can get as offering a sacrifice that costs you nothing because these animals have no value. They're probably going to be put down anyway. And so what you have offered to God is your refuse. What you have offered to God is your leftovers. Is, is it really good enough for me? He challenges them. He says, if you offered this to your human masters, would they be pleased? Would they say, oh, that's great, we love it? When we offer our best elsewhere and we offer what is left over to God, we are actually in contempt of God. We're offering our contempt. We've actually gotten to the point in the modern church where we apply so much grace to ourselves in these situations, we actually think that we're somehow morally superior by offering God half our heart. You just don't understand grace. Oh, the question is not what is good enough for God. The question is, what is God worthy of? I understand we all get frustrated and tired. It's easy to phone it in. But what is God worthy of? Malachi kind of continues with this theme in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. He says, you're cursed with a curse. You have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. So the people are breaking covenant with God, the prophet says, by stealing from God. 
Just the same way that their sacrifices were supposed to be the best, the most perfect, uh, perfect selection from their flocks. The people were called upon to give the first and best of their harvest to God. The first fruits. 10% of their harvest, 10% of their income was to come from God. And this is what we're talking about in this passage. This harvest, the first fruits of the harvest was supposed to be brought to the temple and would fill up the temple storehouses. And that's not happening, God says. And basically the logic is this. Everything belongs to God. Everything. When you can find something on this earth that at its core you created yourself, you can have it. You can have it. That crop, did, did you create the seed? Did you create the soil? Or did God give you that? That automobile you drive, did you, did you dig the ore out of the ground to make the metal? Because that ground belongs to God. Everything, all of our wealth, all of our provision, it all belongs to God. It all came from him. There's nothing that we're ever going to own in this reality. There is nothing that we're ever going to own that didn't come directly from him. And he's fine with us being provided out of his bounty. He absolutely wants for us to be provided for out of his bounty. But he says from the beginning of the word to the end of the word, just make sure you put me first. Make sure that my kingdom comes first. Make sure that the first of your harvest comes to me. And that's the whole idea behind this, this tithe or this first fruits. God even issues to them a challenge. He says, just try me on this. Give me what's already mine. Give me my portion of what I already own. And see if I don't bless you in ways that goes far beyond whatever it is that you think you're gaining by hoarding what you have. It's the closest you're going to get in Scripture to a prosperity gospel. This is God saying, look, I want to provide for you. I want to provide for you. In stealing from me, you're just denying me the opportunity to provide for you. Again, we sort of liberally extend grace to ourselves in this practice of bringing God our last fruits. We get caught up in the soft idolatry of security. We think when my needs are met, when I have what I want, when I'm comfortable, when there's no risk, when there's no challenge, when there's no uh, um, inconvenience, when there's no pandemic, Basically, whenever I feel like I'm totally in control of the situation, then I will be willing to rely on God, which is actually a misnomer, right? Because if I'm in complete control, it means I don't have to rely on God. And that's the whole point. We're doing everything in our power to make sure that we don't have to have faith 
But we're saying to ourselves that when we reach that point, then we'll exhibit that faith. Folks, control is an illusion. We think we have it. We really don't. We really don't know what's going to happen. The one thing that we do know is that God is faithful. And the question is, will we be faithful in response to God? So Malachi adds this in chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, marriage, which he loves, He has married the daughter of a foreign god. And so the people are breaking covenant with God by casually tolerating idolatry. It's the same problem that we see crop up in Ezra. And you remember that story and how it's kind of of a terrible story. People have intermarried with these surrounding tribes. They've taken up the idolatry of these surrounding tribes. And they come up with this absolutely horrible solution to the problem in which they divorce their wives and send their wives and children away. given the dramatic measures that the people had taken in order to correct this problem, you'd think they wouldn't so quickly and so easily fall back into the same problem. But they do. And we have to take a step back and think, how have the world's standards crept into ours? How have we played this same game? Like Israel, we are meant to be a people set apart for God. But how often do we concern ourselves more with the favor of men than the favor of God? Haven't we seen the church tolerate some pretty worldly standards? Worldly standards that deem God's version of chastity and fidelity and identity and humility and sobriety as too restrictive and repressive and old-fashioned. Haven't we seen the church ruled by human creeds and human laws and human traditions rather than by the mission and the Word of God? Haven't we been called to discipleship sometimes been satisfied to sort of punch our religious ticket to heaven. See, every time that we embrace something that is less than God and treat it as God, that is the practice of idolatry. The prophets, of course, always compared this idolatry with adultery. It's that kind of betrayal of God's covenant. But here, It takes on kind of a literal significance because Malachi says in chapter 2 and verse 14, yet you say, for what reason? Why are you turning your back on us? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So the people are breaking covenant with God by neglecting their own family responsibilities. You need to understand, marriage is the most common form of human covenant. Marriage is one of the few institutions in which we attempt to do what God does. We attempt to make a solemn, binding, unconditional promise. It is an effort at oneness, an effort at faithful permanence. And the prophet 
speaking for God, says you have defiled this covenant and you have abandoned your wives. So not only do we have a problem with them intermarrying with idolatrous pagan wives and taking up their idolatry, but apparently some of them are divorcing their own wives in order to do it, their Hebrew wives in order to do it. God goes on in Malachi 2, 15. He, 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 did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. God is essentially saying, I made them one. That's the whole point of this marriage covenant, right? I made them one. Why did I make them one? I made them one for the sake of their raising godly offspring, raising godly children. Now think about this in today's terms. People today, when they think in terms of why it is they might want to get married, young people in our country right now think get married as a form of of self-gratification. As a matter of fact, why do we have children? We have children as a form of self-gratification. Because it's all about me. God says the reality is quite different. It's not all about you. I created this holy institution that I love so that you could honor me through it. And I created it so that in honoring me through it, you could raise godly offspring. You could raise children who honor me. These are two purposes widely neglected as we think about marriage today. But it doesn't end there. Malachi says in, in verse uh, 17 of that same chapter, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? Basically what they're saying is, the evil seem to prosper. So why follow God? Here's, here's my rough translation. It's not fair. Moms and dads have probably heard that before, right? God has heard this from his people all the time. It's not fair. It is not fair. And it is not fair is our rationalization for everything that comes afterward. No matter what standard there is that we have held ourselves to, no matter what moral obligations we subscribe to or tell other people they should subscribe to, it all kind of goes out the window if we feel that we are not being treated fairly. I don't have to deal with you with kindness or refrain from gossip or, or just be decent with you if I think you've been unfair to me. And I don't have to honor God or sacrifice for God or live for God if I have come to the conclusion that he has treated me unfairly. That's the argument that the people are making. That's pretty bold. You haven't been fair. You haven't been just. 
So why should we follow you? People that we know are doing evil are prospering. Some of you know this last quarter I spent quite a bit of time studying false teachers in our, in our modern culture. And guess what? All of them are doing better than I am. They all have nicer houses and bigger bank accounts. They are evil. They are not serving God. They are serving his enemy, but they prosper. How easy would it be for me to look at that and go, wait a minute, God? How come the more faithful I am to you, the less I get out of the deal? Not fair. Malachi, again, speaks for God. God says, I'm going to send a messenger of this covenant, this new covenant that's coming. I'm going to send a messenger who will precede the Messiah. And all my promises will come to fruition. Then he says this, Malachi 3, 2 and 3. But... Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. In other words, the new kingdom covenant covenant will transform justice. This justice that you're looking for, it's, it's coming. And it's coming in a new way, and it's coming in a form that you, you haven't even begun yet to imagine. Everything that hasn't worked about the covenant that I've had with you, which is actually namely you, is going to be transformed, changed in this new covenant. And it's going to be changed because we're going to be restoring righteousness. And the prophet basically says, those of you who are calling out for God's justice, you need to be careful what you ask for. You need to be careful with that. Because God's justice is coming, and it's coming in the form of righteousness. So those who honor God... Those who are in pursuit of his righteousness don't have anything to fear from this coming judgment. But those who neglect God's righteousness, those who fail to honor God, even if they thought he was being too unfair to them, you better watch out. Because he's going to come like a purifying fire. He's going to melt you down. And all the slag is going to be burnt off. And there'll be nothing left except what he chooses to keep. This is in Malachi 4 and 6. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And this is really important. How is all this transformation going to take place? How is this covenant going to be so much different from the old one? And here it is. It's by renewing the heart. What will be different about this new covenant, this new gospel, is that God will be transforming a heart. 
and in transforming a heart, he will empower us to live in his righteousness and his justice. Understand that this new covenant, this gospel that we live for, that the church is founded upon, this gospel is not only our best hope, it is our last hope. This was plan B. There is no plan C. After this, if we have not responded to God, if we've not become his followers, if we've not chosen to live in covenant with him, there is no hope. And that is the sober note on which the Old Testament ends, but there is woven through it this thread of genuine hope that the Messiah is coming, that the new covenant is coming, and in it, all of those who choose to live there, in that space, with him, in that new covenant, will partake of that hope.